Advent. So now hopefully you turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We begin in verse 1 down through verse 12. But all of this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns the oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We pray that as we apply ourselves to these challenging words, that you would grant us life and vision for how you want these words to instruct us and draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, we pray, God, for the work of your Holy Spirit to give light not only to our understanding, but to our own hearts, that we might receive what it is that you've laid up as a treasure in these words for us. And in receiving them, that we might be quick to obey and live in light of your joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I've been reminded several times in the past month or so of the brevity and uncertainty of our life and circumstances. Most recently, as we woke up on Thanksgiving morning to the news that my dad had had a stroke overnight. So that'll save you from asking how our Thanksgiving was on one level. Uh, you know, there we were, Thanksgiving Day, and wake up to the message my dad had had a stroke overnight and he was in the hospital. Our whole family was gathered in Pennsylvania in preparation for Thanksgiving, ready to enjoy a few days of great food. Apply the sermon from last week if you were here to rejoice in the times that God gives you to rejoice. And as you can imagine, that news interrupted the excitement and changed the way that we experienced the weekend. 
Now, thankfully, the stroke was very minor in its effects, and my, my dad is on the full road to recovery and at home and doing well with no permanent damage. We were able to still enjoy some time together as a family, but it definitely made me think of things from the perspective of my mom and dad in their early 70s. Every family gathering becomes a bit more meaningful because you really don't know how many more good ones you're going to have. Honestly, it gets us at the main idea of this passage, which we're going to see, is this. That the brevity and uncertainty, and that word brevity means just the shortness and the suddenness, but the brevity and uncertainty of life under the sun create an urgency for us to enjoy God's gifts while we can. That, that the brevity and uncertainty of life under the sun that we've been reading about in the book of Ecclesiastes creates a sort of urgency for us to see and enjoy the gifts that God has laid up in our experience for us to have. Over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been encouraged to see life differently. We've been encouraged to stop believing we can somehow rule over the future in a way that protects us from the temporary nature of the things that we pursue and toil for. Just last week, we were reminded that our wisdom can't prolong our life. Our wisdom also can't solve the biggest challenges we have in the future. And none of our wisdom could have stopped in any real way what we experienced on Thanksgiving morning. But yet, he says, the one who fears the Lord can come out from all of these things and can entrust themselves to the goodness of what God is bringing about that we don't yet know or understand. So we've been encouraged not to find our hope in the temporary nature of things here, but to realize that all of the gifts of God are fading gifts except for His presence and sustaining work. Everything we work for will expire and decay, we've learned in Ecclesiastes, in some manner, in and of itself. And God has made life this way for His redeeming purposes after the fall into sin. That God has actually made it so that we can't find satisfaction in temporary things apart from being reconciled to God and really knowing Him. We are instead of fighting to control our futures with wisdom. We're, we've been told over and over in this book to instead anticipate this hevel, this, this vanity that is in the world, the brokenness of the world that we experience, to anticipate that it's part of reality and to trust God's promises of redemption, that God is bringing ultimate hope. And by doing so, then enjoy the remainders of the hope that we have in the present. Simply put, God's good gifts in the present are great pointers that His plans of salvation and redemption are worth waiting on, but they are poor, poor hopes. They don't provide us an end, a place of safety and security. They are simply gifts to be enjoyed as we wait for Him to make all things new. So knowing that God is going to bring about a great redemption for us frees us to rejoice in the good gifts of the present 
rather than continuously forego them to try and get a better future for ourselves. So essentially the message of the book that we see laid up here is to enjoy the gifts God approves in the present and trust His redeeming work for your future, not your own wisdom. Walk in the fear of the Lord, receive His provision, and know that there are many moments coming in the future you will have no control over and simply will have to entrust to the hands of a good God. Under the sun, where we live, that's what he's talking about, from our perspective, you never know when a stroke is going to interrupt Thanksgiving. So enjoy the good gifts that you have now, that are in front of you. Now that is helpful on one level, but the passage will do even more as we get into thinking about this idea. In fact, it will ask us to think more deeply about how we even interpret an experience like that stroke was it an evil or a good that we woke up to that morning are the events a demonstration of God's rejection or a part of him working out his approval it's hard for us to imagine that difficult experiences might somehow play a role in God's redeeming work But over and over, this book has been asking us to consider whether we're so good and wise at interpreting our circumstances. I mean, we're reading a Bible where God brings the salvation of his people through the suffering and condemnation of his servant Joseph. So how do we learn to enjoy God's good gifts then? With all of that uncertainty... Well, if we're going to do it, we've got to look at what this passage has to show us about how to embrace this idea. And if we're, So I've got two things I want to show you here, and then we're going to try to apply this. The first is, if we're going to learn to enjoy God's good gifts in the present, we have to resist the temptation to interpret what God is like through our understanding of our circumstances. Now let me say that again. Each one of us here today, and this could free some of you up incredibly to walk with the Lord. But you've got to resist the temptation to interpret what God is like through your own understanding of your circumstances. Now to do this, he's going to show us how to do it in the first six verses. How to resist this temptation to be so confident that we understand the right interpretation of our experiences. What he shows us is our first in verse 1 through 3, our limits. The reason we can't often trust our interpretation is because of our own limitation. He says that under the sun, our interpretation of circumstances are severely limited. In the text, let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, he reminds us that all the deeds of the righteous and the wise are in the hand of God. He said, I laid this all to heart and examined it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. And with these deeds, the righteous man nor the wise man is able, he says, to discern God's approval or disapproval in their life. That's what he means by the next phrase. He says, whether it is love or hate, man does not know. This is what he's saying very plainly. If you stand back with your sense of righteousness and your sense of wisdom and you try to look at your life and try to look at the circumstances, you will not be able to determine whether God hates you or loves you. In your own wisdom. 
left to yourself in a fallen world with everything we've just read in Ecclesiastes about the certainty of death and the suffering and the, the uneven rewards and, and the way things decay and fall apart, you're going to look at that and you're not going to be able to tell one way or the other in yourself whether God loves you or hates you. Now, love and hate here are being used out of the Hebrew language in what we would call covenantal language. It's not just sort of the emotional sense, but it's used here for the co- in the covenant context, meaning rejects or receives. Like whether God sort of rejects everything about you and is, is aimed at bringing the punishments of the covenant upon you, or whether he receives you and you really are right with him and you can expect his blessing in the future, you will not be able to tell that if you just interpret it through your circumstances. Because you have too many limitations. I think he even intends for us to wrestle with this idea in the big picture. This life in general, we've examined in this book and looked at in our own realities. What does it show about God's disposition towards us as humanity? Does it show us that there is a good God who loves us? Or an angry God who's set on destroying us? And he says, left to our own wisdom, our own interpretation, our own circumstances under the sun, there ain't no telling. That feels true to life, doesn't it? Like on some level, it's such a mixed bag of joys and sorrows, it'd be hard to tell what God really thinks of us. He says both options, in general, are before them. In the ultimate verdict, he says, then he doesn't just leave it there. And he says, if we want to just kind of keep going, well, maybe in the longer picture it'll, be, it'll pan out. Well, the ultimate verdict in all of this happens to all of us, we die. If we're going to just wait and go, well, let's see how it works out. Well, every one of us are going to suffer and die. And that death seems to be applied, he says, in the same way across the spectrum of our judgments. Whether it's a righteous person or a wicked person, they die. That's our ultimate fate under the sun. Righteous or wicked? Good or evil? Death. So what does God think? Does he approve? Well, we are all going to face death. Well, maybe, maybe if I'm good, clean, unclean. Here he's talking in the ceremonial context of Israel, of participating in their religious life. The one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't. Well, maybe if I'm religious, somehow I get a better version of death or all these things. And he goes, he goes no, 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 no. Under the sun, you just get death. And if you're trying to look at your circumstances and, and go, does God like me? Does God approve of me based on all of this? Well, every one of us is going to die and they're going to say, and we're going to be like, huh. Were they spiritually successful or a spiritual failure based on how it happened and what they experienced in life? Is there any way of telling whether God loved this person or not? And he says, left to your wisdom, there isn't. You'll be baffled. So if we bring about a question about someone having a stroke on Thanksgiving Day, some may try to interpret it as a sign of God's rejection. But it could quite possibly, in God's hands, be a part of a bigger story, something good God is doing through a difficult circumstance. My dad experienced little to no lasting damage. He got a thorough examination of his current risk factors 
and a plan for focused ongoing care that will likely allow him to have a stronger future for the time being, and perhaps a longer one in which he has the opportunity to see his grandkids continue to grow up and experience more of God's grace. Who's to know whether we should approve of what happened or not? What it says about what God thinks. This is what the writer is trying to show us. Our quick assessments may not be the best. In addition to all of this, the limitations, he goes further and says we have this other problem in interpreting our circumstances. Maybe you saw it in, in, in three, ver- the second half of verse 3. Look at it. He says we not only have the problem of our limits, we have the problem of our madness. Now let's dig further. Why are, do, are we not accurate interpreters of circumstances? Because of our own madness. We underestimate, he says, the madness of our own hearts and thinking due to sin. If you look there in verse 3, he says, Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Notice, it's not just our external circumstances that make it challenging for us to use wisdom to to determine things about God and His ways. It's our internal problem. Every person is affected by the madness of sin. Your interpretation grid is affected by sin's corruption, is what he's saying. I think it's interesting that in Hebrew, the term translated here, hearts of the children of men, is actually a collective singular. So so it would be more technical to say heart of the children of man. Our collective heart, the heart that every person born after Adam possesses. It's a collective singular. It means that none of us get out of this. None of us get out of this description. So no matter how much we would like to whitewash the world and think of ourselves as primarily wise and good, he says, actually, the issue is in turning away from God, we have plunged ourselves into an interpretive grid that is corrupted by sin in which our heart is prone to wickedness and madness. Now, see, we don't often think about the difference between these two things, but here madness means that not only are we prone to do things that are evil and wrong and reject God in his ways but we're also incredibly foolish about our interpretations of life now when you think of madness you think of somebody who is so obsessed with their own idea that they can't see reality and what he's saying here is wrapped up in us is an inability to really interpret our circumstances because we have folly from the corruption of sin bound up in our hearts. The way we think, how we formed our conclusions are all messed up and we're bound up in foolishness, he says. Sin leads us toward evil, but it also makes us mad. A bit crazy in our conclusions. Meaning we're convinced by crazy ideas that are one day going to be shown to be foolish and empty. The bottom line is that the story you may be telling yourself about God based on what happened to you or the the trial you are facing isn't a reliable story unless it squares with Scripture. Let, Let me just reason with you for a second. Every one of us have experienced the, the brokenness of the world, the pain and the sorrow of interrupted plans and circumstances, the, the way in which something we thought was going to really bring us lasting happiness has let us down. Every one of us have been crushed by that kind of destruction. 
And we told ourselves a story about God to get through it. Man, I, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've sat down with somebody and I could just hear the pain of that moment in their life where they stopped believing God could be good. And maybe you're going there right now. So, ah, I don't know if there's a good God. I remember what it felt like to walk through that circumstance. What are you saying here? We better be careful whether we trust that story. That, that we've got a lot of madness. We've come to some pretty bad conclusions about things that are above our pay grade when we do that. Maybe, what God, maybe God brought you here today to just start to re-examine and say, have you, have you asked what has God actually revealed about his character rather than what you concluded through your circumstances? Is there some way in which you're actually seeing God through your circumstances rather than seeing your circumstances through God's revealed truth? And maybe, maybe your hope for believing in a good God is to flip that and, and to stop believing that you had the right interpretation of those circumstances you were facing in life, and, and come to the understanding that God is doing a big thing in the world where He has made things the way they are so that we can find our hope in what is eternal. That there's a whole different story to what's going on than the one that you told yourself. That you would come before Scripture and say, God, would you show me who you are and what your purposes and plans really are? instead of trusting in your interpretation. And, and, and since God is revealing things in time by his plan, he actually celebrates here in this passage then being alive rather than dead. So in, in the next couple verses, four through six, what he says is, he, he kind of clips off, he says, if, this, if it's so hard to interpret reality and all of this, some people are going to be given to despair. They're going to just say, well, forget it. It'd be better to be dead. But he says, no, 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 that's not true because another thing is true about God that we've already read in the book, that God is unfolding a redeeming plan, a hope-filled plan, one that you can participate in and receive by faith, not the one you create for yourself. He's revealing this plan and he's doing it in time. And in time, God takes all of this as a recipe and is making something good that he invites you to trust in. And, and, and by being alive... We get another day to see a bit of that plan unfold. To see more of what God actually reveals about things, not what we interpreted. And so that means with each passing day, we live on, on, on an additional grace of God's revelation. And even this writer in his day was writing before Christ. And he was anticipating the goodness of God's redemption. But we've seen it in Christ. We've understood that God can take terrible, ugly events and bring salvation and hope. So better to be alive where God's grace is active and at work than dead and unable to see it. That's all he's saying in verses 4 through 6. The good news is that while remaining alive, we get the opportunity to see more of what God is bringing together rather than despair. Because the author does not buy the idea that at the foundation of our existence is meaninglessness and chaos. But a good God who created it with a purpose. So if we back up, 
He's showing us we should resist the interpretation, resist the temptation to interpret what God is like through our understanding of our circumstances. Because we've got limits. We're often filled with madness. (laughs) And in our position here, he says, we're more like dogs than lions. Dogs that need crumbs of God's grace than lions who are going to rule over our future. And he says it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. But that means receiving our position as, as an act of humility that says, you know, the way that I get forward in life is by God's grace. By trusting in God's provision. By, by leaning into the promise of redemption that he has made. And trusting him all the way to the end to deliver what he has promised. Not by using my wisdom to win. So into this question of how we interpret our circumstances comes this really positive and commanding section in verses 7 through 10. He kind of takes us there. He looks and goes, be careful how you've interpreted your circumstances. And then he says, because I've got a really positive thing to tell you. And he gives us this section of commands. These are not just mild conclusions, but strong commands about how to live life then if this is true. And I put it all under the heading of remember the approval of joy given by God in creation. So the way we enjoy God's gifts is by remembering God's approval to receive his joy. That God isn't first and foremost out to destroy us. He's not first and foremost even out to judge and punish us. Even for sinners, there's good news today. If you think you have have lived life in a way that you can never enjoy the blessing of God, the, the answer is absolutely no. You can enjoy the blessing of God because He's a gracious creator who wants to overcome our sin through His redeeming work through Christ and invite us back into the joy of original creation. That there's an invitation here. And so he says, if we believe these things, what we can do then is we can take the gifts that we do see in the present, even the temporary ones, and rejoice in them. Just receive them. We don't have to wonder, is God okay with me enjoying this? And so that's what he's saying. He says, so in light of all these things we've learned in this book, verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy. Like how do we eat? With joy. <laughs> like some of y'all have been eating mad. You need to stop eating mad. Eat with joy. Like you've got food, and we got good food. Make some good food. And, and, and like really enjoy it. And remember, this is a gift from God. The fact that right now you're in a season where you can make something good and enjoy it. Man, just make it and sit there and go, this, the God I have wants to thrill me with real joy from his hand. I couldn't have even predicted. I didn't, I didn't make the ingredients. I just found them. There was just a turkey walking by. And I thought, maybe we'll try that thing out. I could have never known how good it could be. And that's like the bottom rung of the food chain. Let's just be honest. It goes up from there. There's a sense of urgency created by these verses in 7 through 10. It's like you can't even do them all at once, it feels like. Like, man, go eat your bread, drink your wine. I mean, it means what it says. Just telling you. Now, this isn't saying, hey, go get drunk. But there, wine is a symbol of ce- celebration. It's a, it's a feasting. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were to put aside money 
at times, as an act of obedience to God, part of their tithes was so that they could feast when the celebrations came. Because it was spiritual to feast. Because remembering God's redemption, leading them out of Egypt, was not a time to say, life is hard, was a time to remember, even when life is hard, God is a redeemer, there's a future, and there's a hope, even in the darkest moments. And it's more important to feast when it's dark than it is even when it's light in your life. Because it reminds you of the character and nature and even future promises of God. And so, he... He's saying here, look at the urgency. It starts with go, a sense of the need to get after it. Go do what? Eat your food. Enjoy your wine with joyful and merry hearts, for God has already approved what you do. He goes on to say, keep your garments white and oil on your head. These are all symbols of feasting and relishing in what you have in the present. You know, it's interesting. Keep your garments white. It was just nicer and more comfortable to wear new clothes instead of ones that were tore up. And he's like, get a good looking fit and show up to the feast. He wants them to to rejoice. Enjoy life with the wife of your youth. Enjoy the familial relationships while you can. Even though life is full of vanity and much will fade, these things are good rewards, he says, for your toil. And you are free to rejoice in them and remember God's kindness. Engage in your good ambitions, he says, for work and creativity as though you mean it. He's like, don't just kind of do it, but if you've got things that are good work, like go after it, be good at it. There's a real joy in accomplishing a meaningful task well, and it's okay for us to rejoice in that. Ultimately, he's showing that under the sun, we will not always know how long we have before death. So get after it with living in meaningful ways. Now, that's, that's different than we would expect after all this talk about death. The key, though, to this positivity, because maybe you saw a phrase there that made you scratch your head, is this question about God approving us. Or God approving of what we do, it says specifically. So many people are wondering if God will approve of their next decision or whatever that thing is for the future. But he says there's some things that we don't have to think very much about, whether God approves it. The key to this positivity here is that he's reaching back to God's purposes of joy in the creation account that show us that God has not created us to destroy us. So he's answering through revelation what we couldn't answer through our interpretation of circumstances. Is God for us? Does he have good plans and purposes? Does he want us to rejoice? The answer is yes, he does. Now you're going to have to part with sin and entrust yourself to God to really enjoy it. But God's purpose for you is good. And God's purpose will guide you through the ups and downs of this life. And it will even bring an overwhelming amount of joy even in darkness. But he says you're going to have to trust the Lord. And learn to see that God's purposes are good. Every one of the things mentioned here that we're told to rejoice are positive things that God gave Adam and Eve in the creation account. This is why he says God has already approved of them. He says God created and said, go eat. Eat from the trees that I've given you. He wasn't intended them to be miserable. Like, go experiment, enjoy them, take them, make fruit salads out of them. I don't know, whatever combo you can get. Like he said, go, do that. Free to enjoy. I've made it for you. Here you are in the garden. Take the things I've made. 
He gave them one another as a gift. He looked at man, a man should not be alone, and he gives them the wife, and there's this big celebration, and they have joy in one another. He made them to rejoice, and so, so here he says, God's already approved of you enjoying your relationship. Go do it. In fact, it's part of the point. If you weren't sure what the point is, it's about cultivating joy in one another. We have this responsibility in the marriage relationship to just embrace the fact that we can actually multiply one another's joy. What sin does wants us to undercut any joy. It wants to, it wants to make us turn on ourselves, our own selfish ambition, our own sinful ways, and ruin our relationships. But God didn't create our relationships for that. If you're finding that you're constantly getting the fruit of that, you need to examine the the way that you have received it. You might be making it an idol rather than a gift from God. And so we're to receive this relationship that we have and the family relationships as a gift and help one another find joy and flourishing. Your assignment, your biggest assignment is to help that joy happen in those relationships. He gave them a desire in the garden To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in an assignment. Not just a matter of reproduction, but the cultivating of ambition and good work and creativity that would fill the earth with joy. These are all good things. We have freedom, he says, to enjoy under God's limits and with his full approval. If we put it in the context of last week, as long as you walk in the clear instruction of God's word, as you have opportunities to enjoy his gifts, like be serious about enjoying it. Walk in the fear of the Lord and rejoice in the good gifts of a God who loves you. And trust his redemption to overcome sin and death. This is the simple message of Ecclesiastes and the simple message of Genesis 1 through 3 and the simple message of the whole Bible. If God is for us, who can be against us? You see, reconciled to God, all of these things become good gifts. Apart from God, they become terrible taskmasters that can never satisfy that's why i can't say is it good for you to eat well some of you might become gluttonous because you think that's your hope is it good for you to drink well some of you might become drunks because you're wanting to escape the challenges of the world rather than learn to trust god and be reconciled to him see it's a question of what's going on in our hearts isn't it and how We've been reconciled to God, whether we've done that. But God approves this pursuit of joy for us inside his boundaries. So we shouldn't live in a way that lets sin and death rob the joy of life. God is working a victory over sin and death that is yet future to the writer here. But he doesn't need to wonder whether God approves of his creatures finding joy in things that God made them to enjoy. And he doesn't worry about God's, he doesn't wonder about God's disposition towards us and his purposes. He's not looking at the circumstances and saying, does God love me? Does God hate me? Does God love me? Does God hate me? And he's going, no, God is a redeemer. And if I'll trust him, he'll make good things even out of the wreck that I've made out of my life. And he'll give me good gifts that I can enjoy along the way to remind me that he's worthy of my trust. And I don't need to go looking for it in sinful ways that I did in the past. Because God is the true joy giver. You see, inside God's boundaries of good and evil and under the fear of the Lord, God approves of his children enjoying his good gifts. 
This is the key. When you recognize these things as gifts of God's grace, you're free to stop idolizing them and sacrificing them to a future that you can't control anyway. These are gifts. Open them. And remember, God didn't create us for death and loss, but for life. Why is this important to remember? Because these moments of joy have the potential to reorient us to God more than despair in many ways. Yes, sin has entered. Yes, life is full of hard things. In those moments, we can be tempted to come up with a new interpretation of what God is like. But instead, we're to see the God who goes looking for Adam and Eve in the bushes, clothes them and promises them that he will redeem them from what they destroyed. These are more foundational truths than, our, than what we think we discover by testing the wind of our circumstance. The song, You Bring the Morning by Andy Squires, captures this vision really well. He says of God, you bring the comfort, I'll bring my thinking. You bring the new wine, I'll bring the drinking. You bring your spirit, I'll bring the weeping. I have nothing else but the promises you're keeping. Man, I love that last line. What do we really have? The only thing we really have are the promises that God is keeping to us. After all that, verses 11 and 12, they ratchet up the urgency with kind of poetic brilliance. When God's good gifts from creation are there to be enjoyed, don't reject them because the times are quickly coming when things may change significantly and permanently. And your performance cannot protect you from the seasons of life in a fallen world. In the future, the race doesn't go to the swift. Can't outrun your challenges. In the future, bread doesn't necessarily go to the wise. You never know what God is doing in the mystery of his plan. In the future, riches aren't going to go to the intelligent. From our perspective, under time and chance, time and chance happens to all. The, the flow of the seasons that he's been talking about. Good seasons, bad seasons, ones we rejoice in, adverse circumstances, all of those things. God works through them to do his work that is lasting, but he also reminds us we're not in control. And there's no way in which the race goes to the swift. So with an unpredictability, a more evil time may come like a trap or a net taking its prey. So eat the bread, enjoy the family, rejoice in good work to remember the goodness of God in this life while you wait for His coming promises. I mean, this is all really good news if you trust in the good hand of God's promises. And as we close, I want to answer an important question you may have as we think about the rest of the Bible for how we apply all this encouragement to receive God's gifts and, and rejoice and take pleasure in His provision. How do we square this with the instruction of Jesus to seek first the kingdom and take up our crosses in discipleship? Were you thinking that question? Were you thinking, I don't know, there's something here about what Jesus says that says, hey, be careful not just to indulge in pleasure because you'll be in danger and not prepared to really follow me because following me means taking up your cross. Following me means seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness and, and knowing that God knows you need all of these things. What do we, how, how do we square that with this encouragement in Ecclesiastes, well, here's four ways, really fast. This will be a lightning round, I promise. It's not a seven-point sermon. 
they're all up on the screen just to make it easy for you in case you can't listen fast, all right? Number one, there's different contexts to different teaching. And we see in Jesus' teaching, we choose suffering over sin and rejection of Christ. It's not that we're never to rejoice or find pleasure. The resistance Jesus is speaking of in regards to taking up the cross in Mark chapter 8 and seeking first God's kingdom in Matthew chapter 7, 6 and 7, is in the context of demands to give in to sin and conform ourselves to the demands of people that hate God in his ways. Should you do that? Should you give in lest you're persecuted for doing what is right and good? No, never. Never, never forfeit real joy in God for the promises of someone who can't deliver. That's what he says. And, and the result of that is we guard our allegiance to Christ above everything else and prepare ourselves to suffer loss, to remain in Christ, because Christ alone is the promise keeper, the one that endures. The reason we do that is because he's preparing for us the enduring, the only enduring kingdom of joy. And the only thing that the world can promise in exchange for him is utterly temporary. Everything anyone else would promise to threaten us, they can't deliver on. So if we have to make a choice, we choose Christ and we suffer with him and go to the cross because we trust in the resurrecting power of our God to give eternal joy. Second, we forego, how do, what do we do? We forego the joys at times to pursue deeper joy in Christ's work. We've already seen that there's meaningful work can be one of the joys. Well, God has also invited us not only to receive the fruits of his redemption, but to join in his work. And so that means sometimes our present enjoyment comes into conflict with another type of joy, the joy of being used by God in the work of his kingdom. There are times where engaging in God's kingdom advancing work will mean trading temporary joys. The pleasures of family being close by, the, the fruits of our comforts and foods that are familiar to us so that we can be somewhere else where the kingdom advancing gospel can be proclaimed and preached through us. These joys are much easier tr to trade, though, when you know that God is a joy giver and the creator that made these joys is also a redeemer who is making all things new. And you are announcing that and awaiting that to be your real satisfaction. So what we do is we trade temporary joys for solid joys and show that we know the heart of the living God. Most of the time, listen, whatever you're trading now is small in comparison to what God gives back. And he says, there's a time coming where you won't wonder whether that trade was worth it. You want to strengthen yourself? Know that God is the joy giver. Most of the time when we make these sacrifices, God provides ongoing, nourishing joys in their place, even as we make the sacrifices. That is what walking by faith looks like. Third, we imitate the early church and help others flourish in joy. Living life in God's kingdom means receiving our food in the way that it's described in Acts with glad and generous hearts. Glad and generous hearts. What happened there? They were taking care of one another's needs. They weren't satisfied enough just to be rejoicing themselves. They wanted other people to enter into that joy, to experience the joy of God, to have their needs met in their provision. And so they were concerned about the flourishing of others. So we celebrate God's gifts by helping others enjoy them and connect that joy to God's deep abiding love for us. He is the feast provider and is redeeming us for joy everlasting. Lastly, we anticipate the joy of God's final redemption by faith. 
This is the good news. Death is not the end, and we were not left to suffer under the misery of sin. Instead, trusting our interpretation of life, we, uh, we look to what God has revealed in Christ. So instead of trusting what we believe about life, we trust what God has shown us in Christ. And why did Jesus go to the cross? It says in Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him. That joy, we find out if we connect it with Isaiah chapter 53, was us entering into the joy of being God's children, restored to him so that we could be receivers of his good gifts, that Jesus was causing us to enter into the joy. Over and over, Paul says he preaches the gospel so that his joy may be complete, so that we can actually be brought into the joy of the master. Over and over, joy is the purpose of God's work. God's creation and God's redemption have the aim at us being rejoicing people who can receive his gifts and entrust ourselves to him rather than trusting our own wisdom. And maybe you're here today and you've never understood the gospel. And the gospel is this. It's the good news we've been talking about. That right now, God in Christ offers you joy and security through his promises and not through your own work and effort. And in a moment... We're going to receive the elements of the Lord's Supper and we're going to celebrate that because it points us forward as well as backward. Backward to Jesus' broken body, his shed blood on the cross that covers our sin and puts us in right relationship with God so that we can know that we are approved in God's presence on the basis of Christ's provision and not our own. And it points us forward because he promises a coming feast. His purpose is for us to rejoice, to find real joy again instead of the folly of sin that continues to fail to deliver on his promises. And if you've never put your faith and trust in the promise of God's salvation through Jesus Christ, today is the day. This is the moment for you to respond to the Lord. I want to encourage you. Don't, don't flee from this moment, but take the moment as we respond, as we sing, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, for you to respond to the Lord and call on Him in faith and repentance. Turn from your sin and trust in the promise of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for this day and for this time. We pray that as we spend this time remembering Christ's shed blood and broken body, that we would be reminded of Your promise of joy we receive that promise and rest in it. I pray for the person here who maybe has never received that gift and put their faith and trust in you, trusted in those promises that right now your spirit would be moving them to respond to you and call on you for salvation, to find real hope. I pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.